Pray with me as we uh, move into the sermon here. Lord God, thank you so much for just a chance to worship together as a community. Thank you that it's warming up for the beauty that's outside, the colors, the green, just all the flowers. Lord, we just thank you for how your beauty is expressed in nature. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to worship together. Lord, we pray that anything that's of me this morning would be quickly forgotten and that anything that's of you would stick to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're starting a new series this morning called Exodus, Egypt Out of Us, and that's not, that's not worded that way on accident. We're going to kind of unpack why it says Egypt Out of Us instead of Out of Egypt in a minute. Um, I had the awesome, incredible opportunity this past summer, thanks to a lot of your generosity. Kira and I got to go on a sabbatical where we actually did a two-week tour of Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. And I got to be honest, like going into the tour, I was really excited about the Jordan and Israel parts, and I was like, it'll be fun to see the pyramids. Like, you know, it'll be, be kind of cool to see that part of Egypt. And we were kind of blessed in the chance, with the chance that we had this guide, um, this giant 6'6 Dutchman from like Minnesota or something, who was uh, like very, very, very mostly passionate about Egypt. Like he really wanted to teach us about Egypt. And we spent four days in Egypt. And he had this way of teaching where he'd gather all of us around, like 50 of us in this like little concentric circle around him. And he'd explain with passion and excitement about some kind of part of like, you know, Egypt's history. And then he'd say, come, let's go. And he'd like run off into the desert with his long legs and we'd all be like scurrying behind him, you know, like trying to follow him to some other site that he wanted to show us. And he'd like tell him grand tales. But we learned a ton about the history of Egypt and a lot of the, it was really important, which I think is something that I, really, I was really passionate about us really kind of discussing as a community because there's so much there that informs what we kind of know about God. Um, First of all, Exodus, the book of Exodus begins after a long hiatus in the story. Over 400 years have gone by between the end of Genesis and when the story picks up in the beginning of Exodus. That's a long time. Like, that is a long time that has passed. Like, to put this a little bit in perspective, over spring break, Kira and I went to just see Williamsburg and Jamestown. And I was sitting there thinking, like, Jamestown was established in, I don't know, I'm not like a history, but I think it was like 1608 or something like that, like about 400 years ago, Right? How much has changed in our world from, like, Jamestown to now, right? Like, you know, these things, like, we had a country that was born that was kind of a big deal, right? Like, Industrial Revolution kind of happened. Like, that was kind of a big deal. Like, we, you know, we had a country that fought a civil war over slavery. Like, we, you know, the technology boom, transportation boom. Like, we live in a whole different world. Like, I feel so removed from the people who were in Jamestown. Like, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how we once lived, and it's interesting to see these things. But just think about these Israelites who have been in Egypt for 430 years. They hear the stories of Israel. They hear the stories of the promised land. And yes, they were really great about passing on oral tradition. So they really kept to the stories. But, I mean, generation after generation after generation has lived and died in Egypt, and no one has seen Israel in 400 years. It's this mythical place almost in their minds, this story that has been told that they hold to and they serve this God that they don't quite fully understand as they're living in Egypt and a land surrounded by gods. But I think it's really important that we remember at this point in Israel's history, they were more Egyptian than they were Israelite. They have been living in Egypt for 400 years. So for us to understand what kind of heritage they're coming out of, we need to understand what Egypt's world was like because that's how they would have self-identified in most ways. The best way to understand the Israelites that walk through the wilderness is to treat them as they were, and that is products of an Egyptian culture. They were very much products of an Egyptian culture as they walked out of Egypt. And God called them out of Egypt and set about restoring them to what they were called to be, which was 
his people. But there is a journey that happens between being steeped in Egyptian culture and being made into reformed into God's people. And we're going to kind of go on that journey together in this series. This wasn't as simple as just overthrowing their oppressors, marching off to a new land, and starting a bunch of new fun traditions like eating a Passover meal, right? This is not like as simple as it was. Um, In a relatively short period of time, this group of people goes from being Egyptian slaves to free people with no idea how to function as a society, wandering around the desert, to a great nation. In a very relatively short period of time, this transformation takes place. So it kind of begs the question, how did that happen? Like, how did this happen? And very intentionally and very painfully would probably be the answers, right? Um, How it happened, it didn't happen overnight. The, The wilderness time where they were out in the wilderness for over 40 years was very intentional unworking of the Egypt culture that had been so steeped in them as God was trying to rid them of where they were coming from to teach them something new, a new way to live in the world. And it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't an easy process. If anything, in a lot of ways, despite the drastic measures it took, getting them out of Egypt might have been the easy part. Getting the Egypt out of them, eh, maybe more of a journey, right? That was a much more difficult journey. Um, And the reason I I had this phrase, getting the Egypt out of them, was um, we had this opportunity to go to Nicaragua, and a lot of you have been with our church. Dan and I got to go. When we first went, we were visiting these people who lived in a garbage dump called La Chereca, and they lived in the garbage dump trying to gather things for sustenance living. It was a really hard thing to watch and a hard thing to see. Um, I think it was like Time Magazine came out a few years after that with like the 10 greatest human atrocities going on in the world at the time. And La Trake was mentioned on, on the top 10 of the worst human atrocities happening in the world at this moment. Well, the Spanish government responded to this by donating a whole ton of money. And they kind of built housing developments and they moved the people out of the dump and into the housing developments. But pretty soon after, you know, we went down and we were thinking, this is going to be great. They're going to be living these good lives. They have these nice houses. Well, a lot of this terrible stuff followed them into this new housing development. A lot of the bad habits, drugs were finding their way into the housing development, and unemployment was still a massive problem. There was a lot of just issues. Even though they weren't living in garbage, they were kind of like living in garbage in their own house. They literally brought garbage and lived among it in their own places. And the pastor there who was doing most of the ministry at the time had this profound thought, and he said this, you can take the people out of the dump, but it takes a lot longer to take the dump out of the people. It's a hard process of reworking. So God brings his people out of Egypt, but man, they brought a lot of Egypt with them. And God was in, in, intentionally trying to start something new. He wanted something very different from Egypt to be the nation that was going to be his people. You know, the same can be said for us. We've been steeped for 400 years in, a, in America, right? Like, this is an incredible blessing. And I, when I say this, this is an incredible blessing. I'm not knocking America. We've been privileged in so many ways to grow up in this wonderful country with access to income, resources, and religious freedom. We are so blessed, indeed. But America isn't synonymous with the kingdom of God that we're called to have our primary allegiance to. In order to even see the kingdom of God was meant to be, we need to strip away layers and lenses of seeing the kingdom with our strictly American eyes. And as we dive into this series, I think we'll see a lot of similarities to Egypt and America and a lot of similar paths that God may want to take to pull Egypt out of us. And that is kind of the heart behind this series is how is God trying to remove the Egypt that is deep embedded in who we are out of us as he kind of brings us to be his people. If we're going to understand how God drew the Egypt out of his people, the first thing we're going to need to understand is what was Egypt like, you know, when the Israelites were there? What was Egypt like in this time? Well, this is not during this time, but these are pictures from Egypt uh, that when I was there. 
The first thing that you need to understand about the Egypt is that it is all based around the Nile River. Now, we kind of think about that as like, oh, yeah, they had a nice little river. They were able to fish. They were able to get some water. Immense desert, every which way you could see, and life barely could possibly exist in the desert. And in the middle of that, and of only two freshwater rivers in the entire Middle East, cuts the mighty Nile. And the Nile provides incredible resources and wealth to a nation that surrounds it. And Egypt started as a kind of households of like one house, powerful houses, powerful houses, and they eventually combined until there was like 42 powerful houses that appointed one who would be Pharaoh. And they basically created a nation on the Nile Basin of powerful families that elected, that basically had a more powerful family. And it just grew in wealth and wealth, and prominence, and they just continued to expand on this. And it was all based off the fact that they had access to the most nutrient-rich water you could possibly imagine. You know, the, what happened with the Nile was that it would flood several times a year, and when the water would pour out, it would just pour fertilizing nutrients into the soil that made it so rich and so farmable, and then it would recede for the next nine months. And they would farm that land. And here's the thing. You, we see it all the time in the Midwest. There's droughts going on. Like the crops are struggling this year. Not with the Nile. The Nile came and went every single year. They could count on it like clockwork. They were going to have food. And in, a, in this ancient world where food was everything like, as unpredictable as you could possibly imagine, Egypt was rich in its predictability. It was rich in the fact that it was going to have resources and it was going to have an abundance of them. And people would trade just about anything to have access to Egypt's grain. And so they had all the spices from the ends of the world and they had all the other things that they could possibly want because they controlled the most important resource in the world, which was food. And they controlled it. Fertile land. This is how, you might not be able to tell with the coloration, this is the most rich, dark, black soil you can imagine. Here's the thing. We're walking in this 40 years after they've built dams and it doesn't flood anymore. It is still that dark 40 years after the flooding. I mean, like, no fertilizer being added. They're just starting to maybe have to tinker with that because for 40 years, it was so rich in nutrients, it didn't even need fertilizer. It, you just throw something in the ground there and it's gonna grow. I mean, it was rich and abundant. And it was, I mean, and they farmed this, like, amazingly. They had incredible irrigation techniques to make the most of this. And then right to the outside of this is this. If you're either in the Nile Basin or it is this kind of ground where nothing survives. This is near the pyramids why there's a lot of people here. But here's the thing. I want you to see how stark it is. This is the fertile farmland, right? Rich, rich, rich. It just ends. That's where the floodplain ends. You stand right on the edge and you could say, I could grow anything I want and live for a million years. I don't think I could grow one single thing in this area. And it's right next to each other. I mean, the Nile Basin cuts strongly through this whole area. I want you to get a little aerial view of how powerful this is. Look at this. It's literally a ribbon of life cutting through mountains of death. Desert to all sides where nothing lives or grows, and just the most luxurious richness you could possibly imagine. When you're picturing Egypt, don't picture the country boundaries that you see on your map. This was Egypt in the old world. It was everything along the Nile. They, they just survived in that Nile basin. It was 100% dependent on the river. And you can see the green on both sides. And then nothing. They didn't, nobody's out here in the western desert fighting for territory. That is not important to them. You can walk out into that desert and they'd say, peace, you're probably not going to be back. Like, that's fantastic. Good luck to you. Like, you know, but, but this, this 
was <laughs> the golden calf. This was like the golden crop. This was the, the most important thing that they could possibly fight for. And they had crazy abundance and opulence. This is Aswan down here. They would actually harvest granite from here and, and take it hundreds of miles on a boat to build the pyramids way up here. Hundreds of miles. They, the, the granite, they, they were so inventive and te- their techniques were incredible. We still don't quite know how, what kind of techniques they used to build the pyramids. No one can fully understand how they moved granite larger than man has ever moved since. And they moved it way back then. They were a brilliant society. Society. And in Egypt, you're either in or you're out. There's no halfway. There's not like, oh, I live in the suburbs of Egypt. No, you live in Egypt or you're out, right? Like, it's very clear who's in and who's out. Like, you know, I live on a bubble where I can't tell if I'm in Towson or not. I'm kind of on the edge. There's no distinction here. They know you're in Egypt or you're not. So it was not an empire the way that Rome was an empire, the way that the Greeks built an empire, the way the Persians built an empire where they kind of conquered and sent people and governors all across the world, but they were the center of influence. And this is very much maybe reminiscent of America in this sense. They had economic influence everywhere they went, right? They were important everywhere they went. And when they conquered somewhere, they didn't appoint a governor. They just said, start paying tribute to us or we'll be, we'll be back. But nobody, no Egyptian worth their salt wanted to live in a foreign land because the Nile was the center of life. It was where they wanted to be. It was the most important place in life. So they all wanted to be in the Nile Basin. So it was tragic to fight and die somewhere outside the Nile. You wanted to be buried in the black soil. That was like the way of life. It was the, the most prominent place for them. So it was not an empire, but a center of influence. And they, you could say they were winning the trade wars. They probably got really tired of winning in Egypt, right? They were constantly bringing anything that they wanted from the outside worlds, and they had every luxury that you could possibly imagine, a place of extreme wealth. One of the thinking of that time was, if I can do something, I should. You say, why were the pyramids built? Because they could, right? Like, I mean, it was really the biggest question. They would build these monuments to themselves. Nobody sat down and looked at the budget and said, maybe we shouldn't be donating these kinds of resources to his grave spot. Like, if you can, you do, right? If you can do it, like, and that's just, and again, Get about 20 minutes into an, island, an episode of HGTV, HGTV's Island Hunters and maybe ask yourself that question. Just because you can buy an island, should you? Like, like, like this is totally America, right? Like, just if I can, I should. Hey, I'm going to get an island. Why not? Right? Like, but like, that was just kind of the mentality. Like, because we can, we must have. There was no, you know, and, and Egypt had the chance to just show off themselves. It was a chance to self-promote to the rest of the world to show how important they were. And they took that really, really seriously. They also had this really high view of themselves in the sense that they believed that they were the true humans and other people were subhuman, which is going to influence a lot of how they would interact with the Israelites in the future. They valued order above all else. I put worship as order, and I mean this very seriously in the sense that they worshiped it. There was three seasons in Egypt. There was the flooding, there was the planting, and there was the harvest, and it came like clockwork. And they depended upon that. They thrived in predictability. And they needed it to be predictable because their whole way of life was dependent on this predictability coming. Life, life depended on this predictability. All of their wealth, the whole society was structured on the fact that it would keep coming the way it was supposed to come. And here's the sense. When I say they worshipped order, I mean it. There was a god named Ma'at that may have been the most important goddess in the entire echelon of their gods. And they had tons of gods. She was a god of order and justice. And they worshipped 
order, that things would happen the way they're supposed to happen. The seasons would come the way they're supposed to come. Osiris was the god of the black dirt, and the god of the wilderness of death was set. And they would worship Osiris on their black dirt and worship order, and they knew that this was going to come, and they would count on it, and they would celebrate the predictability of it all. You know, this is one of the primary things God intentionally sets about rewiring in his people, this disruption of order. Maintaining the status quo benefits those who sit at the top, right? Everything happened very predictably, but that wasn't exactly good news to most of the people in Egypt. I mean, most of them were from other places who were being subjugated. And that was definitely not the people of Israel that this was good news for, the way the order was. This is where we kind of pick up Israel in the story. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, Joseph, the one who brought the Israelites down to Egypt, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They'd say it twice in case you missed it, how vicious they were towards them. This is the conditions of Israel. And we know that they go on to even execute baby boys to try to stop the spread of the Israelites. And it's in the midst of this harshness that the Israelites start crying out. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And we know we're going to kind of fast forward lots of parts of the stories, but he calls Moses. Moses, who was raised in the household of Pharaoh, who had access to the wealth and the information and who knew how Egypt was, was ends up kind of running and living in the wilderness, living out there as a shepherd, just barely surviving somewhere out there in that desert. And God comes to him in a burning bush and sends him back to Pharaoh. And God sends a very reluctant Moses who demands that the people be let free to go. Moses encounters an even more reluctant Pharaoh who rightly assesses this as a threat. You know, like, um, you know, Moses, we have a really good system here it works like a nice wheel. And I don't know if you know this, but like there's a lot of work to do in Egypt and I'm not going to do it. My people aren't going to do it. Like working, making bricks is actually below the station of an Egyptian. Shepherding is below the station of Egyptian. And you don't, you maybe don't realize this, Moses, but the cool thing about slavery is we don't have to pay these people. They just do the work. So that's going to be a hard no. That's going to be a hard no on letting your people go. Like, that's absolutely not going to happen. Pharaoh says, slave labor is kind of a big deal to us. No deal. Like, peace out, right? And so Moses goes back to God, and then God says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. He will not just let them go. He will drive them out. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, reminding him of this ancient history 400 years ago. I am still the same God, alive and active today. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. God promises to act in power. And then we get... Yeah, 
This, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God sets the promise, and the stage is set for the big standoff, right? Because there is someone who's sovereign in the land of Egypt, and it is clearly Pharaoh who believed himself to be a son of the gods. And there's a plethora of gods that defend Egypt. And so the title match is kind of coming. God says, I with my mighty hand will take on not only the Pharaoh, but all the gods who control Egypt, and I will show you where order resides and where sovereignty resides. And this is the, the strong standoff. The plagues happen, but here's the thing. It wasn't called the plagues by the Israelites. You know, that's how we know it in the Bible. That's how the Egyptians sure knew it. But it is, the Israelites called it the wonders. Uh, God's about to unleash his wonder and his might in a powerful way. And it's interesting because God strategically challenges Egypt's gods and the comfort and predictability of their lives. This is exactly what God targets to say, to disrupt their world, he's going to take these things on. And he starts with the Nile. This is not on accident. This is not... You know, like when we read this, we just think, oh, that's a pretty mighty trick. No, he goes after the heart and soul of their lifeblood. And not only does he go after the lifeblood, but he turns it into blood. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. (laughs) He raised his staff in the presence of Aaron and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Think about this. He took the very center of their predictability, the very center of their wealth, and he says, I am Lord over this thing. You think it's predictable? You think it comes every year? I can make it turn to blood and kill the life that exists in it. He takes on the Nile, first of all. And we know that they go back and forth. The Pharaoh decides, okay, I'll relent, then he doesn't, then he says, I'll relent, then he doesn't. But God strategically, through the wonders, challenges their physical comfort with frogs and gnats and flies, this rich society that doesn't like to be bothered is scratching boils before long. He challenges their abundance, right? This great crops that never fail, starting to fail. The locusts come and eat half their crops, maybe all their crops. Their livestock starts to be destroyed. Their very way of living gets challenged, their sustenance. How they start to wonder, how are we going to survive what this God is doing to us? Their security gets threatened. This nation that fears no one starts to fear for their very lives. When a god can block out the sun and they live in darkness for multiple days, that's a pretty terrifying experience. They realize they are just small pawns. And and the Egyptians do not believe themselves to be small. They believe themselves to be the most important humans who ever lived. But not in the face of a mighty god. And he challenged every one of their gods. There was a god associated with almost everything you could find in Egypt. And little by little... God challenges and defeats them, challenges them and defeats them so that he is making himself known. And he's doing this very important, their idea of sovereignty. Maybe Pharaoh is not as sovereign as we think if their God can one-up him in every one of these categories. The wonders were to demonstrate who was worth trusting. Now, he's not only doing this to the Egyptians, he is teaching his people that he is worth trusting, that the God who can deliver all these mighty wonders is worth following because he's about to ask them to do some pretty ridiculous things. And he's long establishing that he is worth following. 
As a culture, we're highly, you know, we value comfort, security, and predictability. I don't think we're that different from Egypt in these ways. When things threaten our security, how do we react when things are threatened? Like, it, it shakes us. You know, we are not a culture that does well with feeling not in control. What happens when our comfort and security comes at the expense of other people? I think it's one thing we don't deal with deep enough in our culture is a lot of times our opulent wealth comes at the sacrifice of someone else. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. This is interesting. For they said, we all shall be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before bound up in their cloaks. This is the end of the Passover story. And the cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They were asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. This is interesting. As they're about to leave Egypt, they start asking their Egyptian neighbors for things and the Egyptians pay them. And God is very clear in scripture that this is payment for slavery. They are being given wages for their time in Egypt as they walk out of Egypt. Thus they plunder the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And here's the interesting, I use the ESV version of this because there's several ways of saying it. A mixed multitude also went with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. We don't notice this very much in, in, our, in our storytelling, but when the Israelites walked out of Egypt, they didn't walk out alone. Other people went with them. Maybe it was other slaves from other places that were being liberated. I get the sense that there was also Egyptians who said, I don't know what this God's about, but he seems to be far superior than even this powerful Nile Valley. I think Egyptians walked out with the Israelites. He had so demonstrated his power that the people who would rather die there than be anywhere else said, I don't know what's going on with this God. But I'm going to take my chances with him. The Israelites delivered. The word delivered is very similar to our word in the sense that we use the word delivery for a baby. That is very much how the Hebrew word was. They, they were delivered as they were being born as a nation. That's the language that it used. Moses had come from the wilderness, and here's the thing. Where was he going to lead them? Back into the wilderness. I mean, like we've, we've established this, right? There's not much out there. So you've got hundreds of thousands of people ready to go. They've got their packs on their bags. They've got money, and they're about to walk into death because everything outside of Egypt, to a place they've never seen, to a place they've only heard stories about from hundreds of years ago, and who knows if it's even still there at this point because everything outside the Nile Valley seems to be death. How much confidence does it take to say, okay, Moses, yeah, let's go. God had been intentionally building trust in them by showing what he was capable of because he's about to ask them to do something astronomically stupid, <laughs> which is to walk into the middle of the desert to follow him out there. The act of walking into the wilderness was a giant leap of faith because here's the thing. They could not survive with that many people in the desert. Flat out wouldn't happen. There's no way to make it happen with earthly means. They were trusting that the God who could block out the sun that the God who could send the locust, that the God who could take the mighty Nile and turn it to blood could carve life out for them where there was no life. And they trusted it enough to walk into the desert after him. I mean, this is just the arid rocks. These are the Sinai mountains that they're going to be getting to, oh, months from now, because it's a long journey, right? 
A host of people does not survive in the wilderness outside of the intervention of a mighty God. It just doesn't happen. Immediate frustration. You know, it's interesting. So one of the things that we start to deal with, and I'm going to let Beth get really deep into this next time with the more specifics, but one of the first things that the Israelites start really getting frustrated with God about is what? Immediate frustration that they couldn't control their circumstances. As hard as slavery was, as brutal as it was, they get out there, and they can't do anything to provide for themselves. And they get frustrated with the God who is very unpredictable, that he moves when he wants to move. He, they follow him when they want to follow him. They cry out, and yes, they have to wait for him to answer. That's not a fun way to live when you, everything's been kind of like clockwork for you. Your whole lives and the whole generations before you has been like clockwork. They knew exactly what to expect in Egypt. They don't know what's happening the next day in the wilderness, and that's terrifying. It's terrifying to live that way. God doesn't promise them in the middle of that order, control, or predictability. None of those things are promised in the wilderness. None of those things are promised in the land that they are going to. That's not like they'll get established and then he'll rebuild those things for them. That is an end to that way of life. No longer will your life be fully ordered, easily predictable, and under your control. You're leaving that behind. That's in Egypt. That's in Egypt. And you are not Egyptians. You're my people. My people live on dependence out of my hand because I will be your provider. He promises peace and presence in the midst of all this. His presence went with them. He led them by a fire, like a cloud of fire at night and a cloud by day. He led them through the desert. He says, I will be with you. I am physically with you in your midst. What do you fear? You know what I did to Egypt. And they're the greatest power that the world had ever known. You know, peace is shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. He promises that they will have peace in life. Not predictability, not control, but they will have peace. And peace in the midst of chaos of life. Life will be difficult for you. Get ready for that. But I will give you peace in the midst of it. It's a character formation change. It's a relational change in regards to me. But never again, you're not going back to Egypt, to that way of life. That's not how you were built to live. Peace is his very presence going with us. It's interesting that Jesus echoes these words years later, right? I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. It's going to be hard. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The Jesus who brings peace overcomes you know, we we're built to live in dependence. We're built to live in a relationship with our heavenly father, not in the predictability of Egypt. And God went to great lengths to break them from that. And then he made them live in it for like a long time out there in the wilderness, just so it got ingrained in a whole generation. He didn't want a generation of people who had lived in Egypt and wanted it back. He wanted a generation that grew up knowing what it meant to count on the father for provision. The more we insulate ourselves, the more likely we are to miss God. And guys, in our American culture, it is easy to build barriers where we don't feel like we need anything. It's a dangerous trap. The more we build up those things, the more we, it's easy to miss God. He calls us to live in an open-handed dependence on him. You know, so some of the questions I want to leave you with this morning as we process this. What have you built your confidence and dependence on? If you're really honest with yourselves, what do you kind of count on to come through for you on a regular basis? Is it that monthly paycheck that you know everything's going to be fine? (laughs) 
Is it somebody? I mean, but God calls us to be dependent on him. Will you trust God to lead where you have never been before? Here's something that I think is really interesting. Like, he led them into a place that they had never been. And he might be doing that in your life right now. Where's he leading you that you're that it's, you know, it creates all kinds of unease in us when we just don't know that we've never been there before. God specializes kind of like he loves to bring us to places that we've never been before. What's, where's he doing that in your life that's going to cause you to lean into him in a powerful way? Let me say this. You will experience God more deeply when you follow him into a place that causes you to lean into him than you ever will in life if you just kind of stay in what's comfortable and what's safe. Final question. Where is the Lord calling you to depend more on him? Where is he calling you to say, you need to let go of that a little bit? I don't want to have to take it. <laughs> For your good, I'll do what I need to to kind of get you to depend on me. But it would be a lot easier if you just let it go. What is that for you that you're just holding to so tightly? And it's probably maybe keeping you from God a little bit. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Lord God, we are so grateful that you loved your people so much that you bought them out of slavery, that you broke them free, that you showed your might and your power, and that you demonstrated those things so that they would know that you are worth trusting. And Lord, the same God who performed the mighty wonders in Egypt, the same God who sustained a multitude through the desert, is the same God that we worship this morning. Father God, you have demonstrated that you are trustworthy that you are powerful, that you are sovereign, that you are worthy of our absolute trust. Lord, help us to lay down the things that keep us from keeping our eyes set on you. Help us to live in dependence on you, Lord. Show us what it is that we need to lay down in order to truly submit to your leadership in our lives. Lord, we just worship you this morning and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.